Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I am John Harris, and today we have a very important guest and a very important uh, discussion because we're going to be talking about the central message of Christianity, the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, what is not the gospel is probably even a better question uh, for today. But I have with me Pastor Mike Abendroth, and um, <clears throat> He's published a number of books. I'm not going to read you all of them. One of them is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Preachers, uh, and, and a number of other ones. You can find them, uh, I'm sure, on Amazon. But uh, Pastor Avendroff has been the senior pastor at Bethlehem Bible Church in Massachusetts since 1997. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary, and he has a doctorate in expository preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. You can go to uh, nocompromiseradio.com. If you want to hear more from Pastor Mike. Uh, Pastor Mike, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. John, I'm glad to be on the show. I listen to all your shows and am happy to talk about this important subject. Uh, they used to have the old Christian book distributors uh, quarterly sale up in Peabody, Massachusetts, and uh, they had a dollar rack. And you can get all kinds of books for a dollar. I think those books that I've published are all on that rack. Oh, <laughs> so maybe don't go to Amazon, yeah. find a good garage sale or something. And yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. And, I, and one of the reasons I actually like you a lot, uh, just, just from a personality standpoint, is you don't take your degrees so serious. You're, you're a very um, uh, accomplished man and accomplished theologian, and, and you've helped me in uh, recent weeks think through some things that I think were uh, possibly holding me back in, in my own theology, my own just resting in the gospel. But yet, you're a humble guy, and I love that about you. So uh, thank you for being humble. Thank you for just, you know, breaking it down for working class people, which I think is so important. Well, John, uh, one of the things I've noticed just in light of what you said, of course, when I'm standing in the pulpit or we're talking about the Lord and his word or on a radio show, we, we want to be honoring him and not just, you know, slapstick and stuff like that. But outside of the pulpit and outside of serious counseling sessions or something, uh, we're just regular people, frail, sinful people. Uh, I used to think, John, that when uh, the Lord called pastors, teachers, maybe they were the strongest, maybe they were the most spiritual because they had to lead. But in fact, when you look at the Bible uh, and see what qualifications are for leadership, of course, I think of Titus and First Timothy, but probably the Lord uses the weakest people uh, to get maximum effect so he gets all the glory. So I think it's just a, a good dose of reality for all of us because we're not all that. Yeah, amen. Um, I want to start off with an area that's familiar uh, to my audience because we talk about it so often. I think most of my podcasts, not all, but a lot of them concern the social justice movement. And of course, right now we're in a context in which this is pretty much stealing all the headlines. And so I want to um, kind of reverse engineer. I want to start with, with that and talk about the gospel in relation to uh, what I would say is probably a corruption of the gospel. And then I want to go kind of back to how did we get here? What kinds of things have been corrupting the gospel um, that led up to this moment? So I'm going to read for you a quote and then get your reaction. This is um, something I found last night. And I find quotes like this all the time from social justice proponents within broader evangelicalism. And this is from the Jude 3 Project. It's a blog by uh, Joshua Crutchfield. And, um, and, and for those who don't know, the Jude 3 Project 
uh, has, they've interviewed, you know, Matt Hall and Walter Strickland and Sean McDowell just recommended them. And so he, here's a, just a sample, not only reconciliation, but also reparations, restoration and repayment are central to the gospel and a responsibility we've inherited by choosing to follow Christ. And I'm going to, one more sentence here. As a black Christian working locally on the ground and interested in the complete liberation of all black people, I'm calling on the white church to seriously consider what 21st century reparations from the church would look like. So I want to just ask you, is that the gospel? Is that central to the gospel reparations in a political sense? And I don't know really where to start uh, when he said something about reconciliation. Uh, if, if he were to talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and to think, you know, we were born enemies and uh, God is thrice holy. And so there's this huge chasm of difference and, and we need to be reconciled, right? Uh, it's not God to be reconciled to us contra the hymn of Charles Wesley, but we need to be reconciled to God. And that's only through peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't even think he meant that. When he talks about reconciliation, I think in my opinion, it all has to do with this racial issue. At the center of the gospel is not reparations. It's not repayment. It's not any other word that starts with an R. Uh, it's not uh, social issues, or even I think as J.D. Greer said recently, uh, the center of the gospel or the gospel starts with justice, something like that. That's right. That. He did say that. That's a direct quote. Yeah. And uh, I just did a little research, and the gospel does have modifiers in the New Testament. And I, I wonder what the biblical modifiers are. Listen to these. They're so good, and it's encouraging to just think about the good news. The gospel of God, Mark chapter 1. So it's his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 9. The gospel of his son, Romans 1. The gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20. The gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, the gospel of peace, that is between us and God, Ephesians 6, and the eternal or everlasting gospel, Revelation 14. With the pinnacle, the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. So when people want to talk about gospel modifiers, I like to ask myself the question, what is not modifying the word gospel? And once you start throwing in words like social and justice and reparations and everything that goes along with it, it detracts. And here's the main way it detracts. It puts the emphasis off the work of the Lord Jesus, and it puts it onto what we do. And that's really the, 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 the key to me. They'll say, yes, uh, of course, uh, it's because of what Jesus did. We have to do these other things. And I think they give it lip service. But really, the issue of the good news, it has to be. And I know you agree with me. It has to be the work of God, the work of the Son, the work of the grace of God. Uh, when people say things like, uh, uh, be the fifth gospel. Uh, so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Mike are the sixth gospel this John without right. an H. Uh, that's not good news. I, I might like to think that sometimes I can do some things to, to the honor and the glory of Christ Jesus, but that isn't good news at all. So if anybody wants to modify the gospel, um, that's where we really have to stand up. And sadly, unlike Jude 3, we have to earnestly contend for the faith that's once delivered. Yeah, amen. Now, so I, I want to ask you this because I don't know if you see the same trajectory that, that I saw, but uh, 
this social justice movement kind of came in right after, I guess, what they call this neo-reform movement or the, the new Calvinism uh, was taking the church by storm. And uh, Gospel Coalition is usually one of the identifiable organizations people point to. And, it, and I saw a connection. It was some of the same people that are promoting this were promoting that movement. And um, in that movement, there's a lot of emphasis on, um, at least I noticed, on external behavior and making sure that you're, you're I guess, acceptable to God in some way. And, um, and I know I had told you once that you know, this was something that I think I was caught up uh, in to some extent. And I was hoping you could just talk about that uh, for, for those who might be um, in captivity, in a sense, and just thinking that they have to be so, you know, right before God because of their works in order to be accepted. Um, do you see that trajectory? And, and can you comment on that a little bit? Sure. And I do think it's related. Uh, if we just think big picture on how does God accept a sinner? And again, we just think about what God calls Adam to do, what he called Israel to do in the wilderness, what he calls all of us to do. And that is simply as created beings, we have to obey. We have to do this and live, uh, if you think of Luke chapter 10. Problem is, of course, uh, we don't do that. The way I teach my kids or younger people is I would say, you know what, uh, I'm sitting on a tractor and I've got reverse and I've got uh, forward and neutral. And then the Lord says, I want you to obey. And therefore, I've got to go forward. Well, really, in reality, because of Adam's fall and depravity, I'm going backwards and so therefore, I need to not only have my sins forgiven to get back to neutral, I need to move forward and then obey uh, perfectly, except that that's impossible. And so I think what happens is there's this culture of obedience in the warp and woof of a person. That's not all bad because we are supposed to obey. But here's the problem. Our standards are too low. God requires, as we look at Westminster or some of the other Reformed confessions, perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. And uh, the way I like to remember that is, you know, those marshmallow things that you get at Easter, what do you call those? S'mores. Uh, S'mores, okay. What about the Easter ones? They look like little oh, chickens. Oh, the, the Easter ones. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of campfire stuff. The, I don't know. I don't eat uh, marshmallows. Yeah, the, I don't either, but I use it as an acronym, PEEPS, those little PEEPS. Oh, I, I, okay. I know what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. So just think about the standard of standing before God. Perpetual P, exact E, entire E, <laughs> personal obedience. That's what God requires. Mm. And so therefore, uh, when we attempt in any way, shape, or form to do that uh, for our standing before God, we fall short, but it's still kind of within us, that residual, that desire to work, except it then eclipses the work of Christ. You and I talked on the phone a while ago. I think the key verse, when I want to try to flush out this works for righteousness, this works to keep standing, this works uh, to have a final justification, I think it stems from Romans 2.13 and a, a wrong view of that. And this is the passage, by the way, which I didn't tell you on the phone. If you misinterpret, children should laugh at you. That's what Calvin said. <laughs> and for a long time, I had children probably laughing at me, but I don't think anymore. Here's what Romans 2.13 says. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God or righteous, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
And what a lot of people do in evangelicalism, this neo-Calvinism that you were talking about in the last generation or so, they'll say, you know, you have to have a lot of works or some works or, or quite a few works, and you have to treasure God a certain amount, desire God a certain amount, um, have him be your Lord a certain amount. And that, that kind of helps you along, except that's really law light. Mm. Romans 2 is in the section condemning everyone. This is not a sanctification verse. That's Romans 6 and 7. This follows the heels of Romans 1, where the Gentiles are without righteousness. Now chapter 2, moralizers or Jews or people who think they're good, you're not any better. So he says in Romans 2.13, you can't have any righteousness unless you are perfectly obedient. So this is the rich young ruler going home because he can't fulfill the law. That's right. Except, except, yeah. That's right. So what happens, I think what we do, John, is we say, um, what's that passage about? Well, it's about you have to be willing to yield your life, uh, to surrender your life, uh, to submit all areas to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, while that happens in the category of sanctification, we believe in sola fide, faith alone. No antecedent requirements. You don't clean up your life in order to come. God justifies the ungodly. And therefore, the issue with the rich young ruler, Jesus essentially showed him that very passage. That's insightful of you. You have to perfectly obey. You want to get in by your own works. What must I do to be saved? The legal answer is perfectly obey. The gospel answer is the Lord Jesus will obey in your place if you'll trust in him. Okay, now I know some people, when they hear this, they're going to say, hold on a minute. You're talking about one purpose of the law, obviously, which is to condemn humanity and show us that we're in sin and need a savior. But isn't there another purpose? Doesn't the law also guide us into obedience with Christ? What do you say to people who would bring that up? Sure. I would say I agree with you, and it does, but just please don't confuse categories. We don't want to commingle those things and get something that's not gospel news that's good or law do something you get what i think michael horton called gospel right you get this blending or this commingling we do believe in good works as luther said you're saved by faith alone and that faith isn't alone but we have to be able to distinguish between the ground of our salvation and the evidences are fruits and once they start coming together your insight on neo-calvinism is essentially a reverting back to rome where you've got to have a certain amount of sanctification to keep your justification or to get it or to have final justification. So really, when we, we ask these questions, we have to start thinking law, gospel. We have to start thinking, what does God require for perfect obedience? And, and I think neo-Calvinism falls short of that because technically speaking, historically speaking, just because you believe in the sovereignty of God, you're not a Calvinist. Just because you're a five-pointer doesn't mean you're a technical Calvinist. I'm, I'm glad for people that believe in sovereignty. Uh, I'm glad for people that believe in the five points of, of uh, you know, answering the questions of their monstrance. That's great, but that's not, uh, I think Janice, Jan, uh, Janet Mefford said yesterday uh, something about she sees the theme of Calvinism with a lot of these social justice warriors. And I think it's true, but it's not Calvinism's fault, obviously. Um, by the way, James Boyce, let's, we, we can make people mad on our shows. James <laughs> Boyce once preached a sermon Jesus was a Calvinist. <laughs> I couldn't oh believe he, only James Boyce could pull that off. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of presentism in that one. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, um, 
just for some illustrations on this, because I think, you know, at this point in our interview, there's people that are probably listening, thinking to themselves, yeah, that resonates with me. You're right. There was something in that neo-Calvinism. I'm going to take just a minute and just give you personal testimony. So I had to read, it was required in seminary to read uh, David Platt's Radical. And, um, and I'm just using this as one book because there were a number of other ones that had the same theme. But in Radical, I, I almost felt when I was done reading it that I did not sufficiently hate the American dream enough and love people who were impoverished enough because I was living, well, I was at seminary. I was living in Wake Forest, a suburb, you know, it was pretty nice there. Um, and so I thought, I'm not following Jesus. And, you know, they're, they're giving these to all these middle class kids that aren't actually really doing what the book recommends. And so there was a burden of guilt. I saw it in, in others around me as well. And I, I knew there was something wrong with that. But I didn't, I think most of us didn't know exactly what it was because look, there are, there are passages where Jesus says to sell and give to the poor, which we just talked about being in the wrong category. Um, could you, could you just um, maybe illustrate that for maybe give some other illustrations of what does this look like in someone's life when they're confusing categories and, and having a burden of guilt on them? Right. Well, with Platt, uh, it's interesting that you felt that because I think of a lot of, a lot of other people felt that burden. And you feel the burden when I think you see the law or it's presented uh, apart from the lawgiver. Remember, that's exactly, and I'm not saying Platt is satanic. Don't get me wrong. I, I want to finish my thought on this. But remember what happened in the garden. Uh, Satan was saying to Eve, and then, of course, Adam was there with her. Um, you know what? These, these restrict, these bind, these, this rule isn't any good. But if they just would have realized, you know what? This is coming from a loving father who's given me everything and given me a wife and he's generous and he's gracious and these are for my own good and his glory and my pleasure and all these things. And, and so what happens is if we're not careful and we begin to blend law and gospel, we start seeing the law uh, from a hand of a God who says, I expect perfect obedience, right? So let's just think big picture for a second. God is a judge and he's a creator and he wants obedience. And so we have to perfectly obey. Well, now that Jesus has obeyed in our place as Christians and forgiven our sins and has been raised from the dead, we have the same law because God's immutable and his holy nature has a, the, the, the laws are the same. But our relationship is different. Our relationship to God is now of father and son. So where before the fifth commandment, don't commit adultery, if you have one bad thought sexually, of course, you stand condemned. James chapter 2, verse 10. But now when we struggle with sexual sin, it's not uh, if we disobey, uh, we, we are going to be kicked out or something. No, it's our father. And we may get chastened, of course, and we want to honor him out of gratitude. That's true. But I think what Platt ends up doing is he ends up confusing God as judge um, and God as father. Because when you have sanctification jammed into justification, you're always thinking, am I acceptable? Do I measure up? Can I do enough? He talks about living the gospel a lot. We don't want to talk that way. You can adorn the gospel, but you can't live the gospel. Jesus, who could live the gospel, said to all of us, preach the gospel because it's, it's good news. And when Platt says things like uh, the gospel evokes unconditional surrender, that's one of the things he said in the book. If it's in the sanctification category where we want to unconditionally surrender, fine. 
But there's a reason why sola fide is sola fide. It's not sola surrender. It's not any of these kind of things we talk about submission. It is knowledge, assent, and trust. And we can just rest and trust and rely on the finished work of Jesus, which I'll stop now, but it totally relates to assurance. Because if you combine these categories and you see God essentially as a judge, you are going to have no assurance. And so how do you get assurance? Do more. Do what the celebrity says. Try harder. What do you do when someone comes to you, which I'm sure you've had as a pastor, and they, you know, let's, let's make it a, a younger teenager who is now going through the changes that come with adulthood, and they say to you, Pastor Mike, I, um, I messed up, you know, the other night. I, I looked at pornography, and now I'm wondering, am I even a Christian? I, I know I, you know, I love Jesus, and I've, I, I know he's my Savior, but how could I have done that? What do you say to someone like that? Well, before I think like I do now, that is with some of these strict categories of justification and sanctification, which by the way, one will always follow the other, but they're, they're different. Before I really came an end to, became to an end of, of thinking that I was so righteous on my own uh, through cancer and some other things, I would have met with a man for 60 minutes, and for 55 minutes, I would have said, this is what the Bible expects. How can you call yourself a Christian? Uh, this is how you need to stop this in the future. This is how you need to make amends. And you know what? I would still tell them those things, but here's how it would be different. The final five minutes of the old mic would be, I love you. Um, the Lord loves sinners. Let's pray. But now what I do to people that I think are really Christians and who, who have sinned, I was going to say struggle, but maybe it's not a struggle. Uh, maybe it's not some lapse or fall, but they really did sin. I talked to them for about an hour of the Lord Jesus and what he has done and what his life was like. And uh, not one sin, not one uh, lustful look, not one foible error, a shortcut. I mean, just not even one. And when Jesus was tempted, of course, uh, in Matthew 4, we always look at it and say, how do you overcome temptation? Hide God's word in your heart. It's good to hide God's word in your heart. But Matthew 4 is so much more. We're sitting there watching Jesus. And if he succumbs, we are so lost. Your eternal life is riding in the hands of Jesus, your captain. Will he make it? Adam tempted in the garden, failed. Eve tempted in the garden, failed. Israel tempted in the wilderness, failed. David on a rooftop, failed. We fail. Can somebody live up to the commands and demands of God? Jesus, I think you can do it. And of course, he overcomes Satan. So then what I would do, back to your the pornography issue, I would tell the person, here's who here the Lord is. And, uh, and I've done this before. And then I embrace them at the very end. And I tell them, I love you. And then with my finger pretty hard on their sternum, I say, and don't you ever do that again. So it's changed a little bit because I think what motivates people? Does the law motivate? John Murray said the law has no motivation. The law just says, you did it or you didn't. Everybody can think about GPS these days. And think, let's think about how are we motivated to obey or to say no to sexual sin or lust or pornography? Is it the law? Well, we need to use the law. Of course, it's good and holy if it's used rightly. You're in a car. You've got your GPS. 
and it says, uh, I don't know where you live anymore, but let's say I was going to go visit Virginia. You today. Yeah. Virginia. Okay. Albany. I said at four and I've got the GPS and either says, good job, keep going or turn around, you know, you turn here or something. But if I don't have an engine, I don't get there, even though I've got a GPS. Mm-hmm. And so the law is like a GPS, but the engine, the motivator uh, out of gratitude is the Lord Jesus. And that's why Romans 16 says we are strengthened with the gospel. So I would try to help motivate him by talking about the Lord Jesus and then giving him that's the beautiful. guidance from the law. Yeah, that's uh, that's really beautiful. And, and certainly, you know, when you said the old mic, I mean, that I heard teaching on this issue that is exactly parallel to the 95% the law. And then, so I, I think that's, that's a great uh, word on that. I, I'm curious uh, when you evangelize, how do you, do you use the law? How do you um, approach sharing the gospel with someone who is not saved uh, without confusing categories? Mm. Good. Well, I do think, because what we would call the first use of the law, to show them their sin. Right. Um, but what are, these days, I don't try to get to the Lord Jesus too fast. Here's what I mean by that. Romans 3, verse 19 says, now, that, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and there's a purpose. What's the purpose for these unbelievers being under the law? Answer so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, there's never a wrong time to talk about the Lord Jesus and what he's done, but there is a time to make sure we really demonstrate to people from scriptures. Maybe we even talk about creation. Maybe we talk about conscience, uh, but we tell them about sin because they need a sin bearer and understanding some of the synonyms for, for sin uh, trespass, transgression, perversion, iniquity. There's lots of different Hebrew words and Greek words. So I try these days to talk more about uh, the heinousness of sin because then they, they need someone. They need someone to be there in Matthew 4 to overcome temptation and to perfectly win and then set his face like a flint uh, to Jerusalem so he might suffer and die. So I, I do use the law, but here's the thing. I think sometimes it's just all law and no good news. So you hear street preachers. Um, I was in Dublin once with my wife, and there was a huge square there. And uh, I I wanted to go get some kind of cool glasses. I don't know, like Bono or somebody. I was there for a (laughs) secular reason. And uh, I saw a guy standing up uh, on a box, a preacher's box, kind of with a little attendant, a bodyguard or something. Both have suits on, dressed immaculately. And here's what I heard repent, I believe, turn and burn. And he was saying all these things like that, which are all true and must be said, should be said. But he wasn't talking about Jesus. So after a heavy dose of the law, I want to make sure I tell them about Jesus, the law keeper, Jesus, the sin bearer. So I can talk about substitutionary atonement. I can talk about the Lamb of God and all these other things. So I walked up to him kind of sheepishly. I didn't want him to think I was going to attack him. And I walked up and I said, I teach a lot of preaching classes and I want to make sure all my students talk about the Lord Jesus too and not just tell people to repent. And then I walked away. Well, he immediately figured it out because he was in that mode of the street preaching and just law only. And he forgot to talk about Jesus, the risen Savior. And then he said, and Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and hell and is alive and he's coming back. He died on the cross for sinners like you. And I didn't do it physically, but in my heart, I was going, 
<laughs> with his courage and my theology, we make a good team. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so when you get to the call, you know, they call it the call, you know, the, the altar call, the some, you know, ask Jesus into your heart or you, know, you need to repent and trust. What do you say to an unbeliever? Do you, how do you uh, transition that? And when sure. they say, what must I do to be saved? What does Mike say? Right. Well, this last Sunday, I was in the book of Hebrews as we're going chapter by chapter, and I came to chapter 13, verse 10, and it says, we have an altar. It's very fascinating because, of course, for years, I blast Roman Catholics for having a non-bloody, you know, sacrifice on their altar. And uh, for years, I would critique altar calls and calling people to a place. And, and here it is, we have an altar. And by the way, the neat context with that is the Jewish people uh, who are Christians and professing Christ are getting persecuted by other Jewish people, Old Covenant Jews. And those Old Covenant Jews are saying, you don't have a temple, uh, you don't have a sacrifice, you don't have an altar. And the writer uses good figurative language, a metonym, using one word close to something else. And he says, we have an altar, we have a sacrifice. And by the way, you can't have any of that sacrifice unless you believe in Jesus. So anyway, when it comes to altar calls, uh, I don't call people to a place. I call people to receive Christ Jesus. I can use words like believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I can say whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. I can say repent. I can say uh, receive. I could say rest. There are many words, and even John Owen in his uh, great 16-volume set has, has categorized a lot of these calls. But here's what I don't say. I do not say you have to stop sinning in order to come to Christ. I say God accepts sinners. That is to say that Jesus justifies uh, the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's where I think some of our friends maybe fall into the category of thinking repentance somehow means change your life in order to come. Yeah, because I know many look back. I, I mean, I saw this in my class uh, in soteriology when I was at um, Southeastern. It seemed like most of the class when the professor asked, you know, did you doubt your salvation at any point? All hands went up. And they all had similar stories just about, you know, I was young, I prayed this prayer, I was baptized. And now I'm looking back on that event and I'm wondering, did I have perfect repentance? <laughs> mm -hmm. was, was I really truly believing in my heart? And of course, do we ever truly 100% believe the way that Jesus, you know, believes? No. So I, I, I just think it's so destructive um, when, when you have to think you're, you, you must be clean before God can accept you. That's a good point. And when I think of repentance and faith, uh, I would uh, ask your, your audience to read Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, W-H-O-L-E. He has a good section in there about repentance and faith. And so just in summary, when you think of the Reformation uh, going from Rome uh, to what the Bible teaches, sola fide, means faith alone. And uh, then you have to think about which comes first. And of course, you can't have an unrepentant believer and you can't have a believing unrepenter, right? So chronologically, it would happen at the same time. But as Calvin said, repentance is the fruit of faith. And so logically, faith comes first. And when we even hear words, somebody will say to me, Luke 24, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That's true. Uh, 
Uh, but to give you the theological word of the day, synecdoche, uh, and I love to hear Sinclair Ferguson hear synecdoche. That's when you give one word which can envelop both words. So when you say repent in the New Testament, sometimes the text says, and they believed. Peter sometimes says repent, and then they say they believed. I could say believe, and then the text says they repented. So if I say one word, believe, it encapsulates repentance because that's the, how we view sin. Faith is more towards the object of the Savior. But I could say repent, but what I don't mean when I say repent is you clean up your sins. We have a free offer, and if you don't have water, come. You can buy it without price. Mm. We don't want to have any preparationism where the people have to do certain things in order to believe. That's and here's good. what happens. What we do is we say, well, uh, I read John Bunyan's biography and David Brainerd's biography, and for 15 to 18 months, they were laboring under their sin, and then they believed, and that's what should happen. But that's not what always happens. That happened with them, but it doesn't happen with everyone. And I, and I think, John, I could probably make a point if I said, what about a communion service? What's that meant to do? And for most people, it's a frightening time. It's like, I got to examine all my sins. Did I do this? Should I take it? Anybody watching? The deacons handed me the, 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 and do I, should I? Did the pastor notice? Yeah. Of course, there's an examine statement in First Corinthians. I don't doubt that. But just think about what we do with a communion service. Isn't a communion service supposed to follow Jesus's words when he says, do this in remembrance of me? me? Isn't it supposed to be about Jesus? Don't you want to come to a communion service? And I could say, John, did you pray enough this week? Did you evangelize enough? Did you have a good enough attitude? to serve Never. Life? <laughs> I know. So I just want to remind you, dear Christian, weak Christian, sick Christian, dying of brain cancer, Christian, stay-at-home mom, Christian, they can hardly open their Bible because they got six kids there. I want you to know, Jesus prayed enough. And Jesus is actually praying right now for you. And Jesus read enough, evangelized enough. He did everything adequately enough because he always pleased the Father. And I just want you to know, God couldn't love you anymore. He couldn't love you any less because he loves you like he loves his son. And so today, we're going to remember that Jesus paid it all. And of course, our response is, all to him I owe. We're not against the law, but we want to remind people, I have good news for you. And so in my circles, we turn communion into all law, where the primary part of communion is gospel. Well, it, it seems to me, and that was excellent, by the way, it seems to me that um, the focus is just is on people and their performance so often that we just turn our eyes off Christ did, which is, I think what you're saying about communion is that really the focus ought to be on Christ, not on us and how we achieved, you know, a certain barometer of um, obedience. Um, I want, I want to talk a little bit about good guys and bad guys. And I, and I don't expect you to give a full history of the, uh, how different men thought on this issue. But um, I do know that when the neo-Calvinists started uh, going in the last 30 years uh, or so, a lot of um, Puritan works especially have been quoted like Richard Baxter, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Um, I mean, a lot of Puritans have become, uh, and, and there's things I love about certain Puritans, but they've become like the pinnacle of um, religious, uh, I don't know, I, I'm just going to say it, superiority, I guess. They're, they're the model, they're the, you know, what to shoot for. Um, what do you think of, of the Puritans in general? And, and you, I'm just giving you kind of an open question so you can go any direction you want with that. 
Sure. <clears throat> See, one of the great things about being a radio host, being interviewed by another radio host, you, I get good questions like that. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it took me 10 years to do what you figured out to do in a year. Uh, so when we hear the word Puritan, um, it's, it's a broad category, almost like today when we say evangelical if we said Calvinist or something like that, because there are a lot of different beliefs there. Even if I said something about Anglican, Presbyterian, uh, maybe some Baptist here or there, but in general, Puritans, uh, if you want to know some background, I would recommend that big thick book by Joel Beakey on Puritans. And you could just look up John Owen. What was he? Congregationalist. What was he known for, et cetera. But just because somebody's a Puritan doesn't mean they're good. So there are some Puritans that I never recommend at church. And if somebody has a book by them, <clears throat> I just meet them. I don't say anything, of course. But as I get to know people and want to shepherd them, can come alongside. Really, the worst one is Richard Baxter. And he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. I read and when it. I met, and when I, I know, and, and you got convicted, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Felt like you didn't measure up. Well, I, I'll just say this real quick. I went to my dad, I remember, after I read because I, I – of all places, it was at Shepherd's Conference. I think I got it. One of those like audio CD sets. And, and so many guys had recommended it to me. You got to read the Reform Pass. So I read or I listened to it. I went to my dad and I said, Dad, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> That's what I said. You, you got to read this book. I mean, he's like in people's houses, you know, 13 hours a day. And so um, anyway, now I realize how stupid I was, but yeah, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Um, uh, the, the only thing I really like about, uh, Richard Baxter, I remember long ago, I'll tell you why I don't like his writings, but long ago I read something about, uh, he had a section about dreams and he said, uh, he was asked a question, what if you, uh, sin in your dreams, do you have to confess it when you awake? up? And, uh, he said, well, that's all subconscious, unconscious and all that stuff. And I would only suggest confessing and repenting if you put bad things in your mind before you went to bed. So there's my bone for Richard Baxter. That's but it's not, it's not a reformed pastor. It's the unreformed pastor. I said to the leadership at Banner of Truth, I love your ministry. I love your books. But that is such an awful book. Richard Baxter quickly essentially said this. He was a chaplain for Cromwell's New Model Army. Many of the soldiers said they were Christians and they did things that were awful, not just in war, but prostitutes, etc. And so he thought, you know, what do I do with an antinomian licentious lifestyle? Well, what we don't do is add new laws to the gospel. The gospel can combat both antinomianism, no law, and neonomism or legalism, new law. What we don't want to try to add and, and the pendulum kind of swings back and forth. If six o'clock is the Bible and five o'clock over here is antinomianism, we don't go to seven o'clock. So he began to talk about obedience and sincere obedience. Here's a quote. Sincere obedience to God in Christ is a condition of our continuance in a state of justification or of our not losing it. Good news? <laughs> I mean, Not really. Uh, I, I know. Uh, therefore, uh, Baxter uh, was uh, a mortal enemy theologically of John Owen. And John Owen, I think it's volume five, his justification by faith book was written against Baxter. Mm -hmm. uh, those men try to make up some. They try to put a statement of faith together, but Baxter couldn't even use the word Trinity. And so they, they never did. So I would never recommend Baxter unless you like to have minimal assurance and have guilt without gospel. There's nothing wrong with conviction. Mm 
but then we give people the balm of the gospel and who Jesus is after. Joseph Elaine, Elaine's alarm uh, is too heavy on law and, and not gospel and blends it sometimes. Matthew Mead, Almost Christian Discovered, those are books. David Brainerd's journals, um, some of Edward's stuff. You read it and you just go, I don't know how I could be a Christian. And really, I think what happens is, if I had to summarize it, John, uh, Luther said, when I look to myself, I don't know how I could be saved. But when I look to the Lord Jesus, I don't know how I could be lost. And wow. so therefore, uh, and, and Ferguson in his book, Whole Christ, really helps us with this. Is assurance part of faith? Is it part of the gospel? What is it? What is the relationship? And I just think, you know, the old Mike used to preach to people, and I didn't want any unbelievers sitting in the congregation thinking that they had assurance. And I still don't. But I think I preached at the expense of granting gospel assurance, biblical assurance, to the saints sitting there mm -hmm. in the church. And I'm supposed to be, ecclesiologically at least, a shepherd for the sheep and not for the goats. So I said, even Sunday, if you're not a believer, I call you to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. You will die one day and stand before God without a mediator. And standing in the presence of God without a mediator is called hell, right? Because God is in hell and you need to have a mediator in the presence of God. That's called heaven. That's called the Lord Jesus. You mean hell isn't shut from the inside? <laughs> Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hell's gates are shut on the out inside. I think that yeah. was C.S. Lewis, and then of course echoed by Tim Keller, yeah. uh, who who has a, a doctrine of hell similar to his. Um, but anyway, um, uh, when it comes to assurance, and when it comes to Puritans, uh, there are some that are great to read. I'd say John Owen would be really good. I try to read eight pages of Owen a day. Really, I have a, I little, have, have a little aphorism, and it's called uh, Eight Pages of Owen a Day Keeps the Richard Baxters Away." <laughs> because it's hard to read, but if you'll just read seven or eight pages a day, you can get through a few volumes a year. And uh, I just uh, read the Glory of Christ. Oh. Part of which, here's a good thing by Sinclair Ferguson, out of all the books by John Owen, which one do we read first? Sin and Temptation. Owen, uh, um, uh, Ferguson said, why don't we read the glory of Christ? Or Yeah, or Mortification of Sin. Yeah, yeah, Mortification of Sin. That's yeah. what people read, yeah. Right, right. So I think the uh, uh, William Perkins would be good, hearty reading for people. He would be considered a Puritan, an Anglican, just has the 10 volumes out on Reformation heritage books. Uh, and so many great Puritans uh, to read, but I would stay away from uh, Mead, Elaine, Brainerd, and especially Richard Baxter. There, there was a, um, a quote that I wanted to read for you because I, I think it sums up well, um, and I'm looking for it now, but there, there was, you know, we, we're talking about mixing these categories of law and gospel and how in the, the neo-Calvinist movement, there's kind of this understanding that you, know, you, you got to clean yourself up somehow. And, um, and you just mentioned Tim Keller, which sparked a thought in my mind. Uh, Tim Keller was, it was, this was from uh, 2005, um, if I can find the quote, but he says essentially, uh, let's see here, this is um, actually 2006. He says, and I know you probably haven't listened to this whole talk, but he says, God is a venture capitalist, the whole, and then he says, and he's talking to a room full of businessmen, and then he says, the whole purpose of salvation is to cleanse and purify this material world. And I had listened to this speech, and, um, and I'm not looking for you to bash Keller from a speech you've never heard, but it, this is the kind of 
language I'm seeing a lot of time is that, you know, the gospel, it means doing something in culture, right? And so it seems like, is this a fair assessment? Maybe we went from, we got to clean ourselves up, right? That's gospel in some way to now when we got to clean the world up, <laughs> that's also gospel in some way. And so then what's the real, what's the good news in, in either of those things? It just seems like we keep adding works of some kind to what Christ has done. And I, I'm commenting, I'm not asking a question. I'm just, this is the radio host question. What's your reaction to that? <laughs> reaction? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I didn't listen to it, but there right. is this desire by so many people uh, to make cities certain things and uh, uh, to change the culture or redeem the culture. And I think it eventually gets to kind of revoice where people, you know, side A, side B kind of people can appreciate mm -hmm. arts and culture better uh, because they have a homosexual orientation or something. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, when I think of cities, I think of Hebrews 13, we have no lasting city here. Hmm. When I think of cities, of course, evangelize people in the city. But for me, the contextualization isn't with the data in Scripture. But I know there's people at the church that I pastor. The, the church that I pastor, I think, is uh, the town is 93% white. A uh, little town in New England, 6,000 6, people in the town. And uh, I think we have maybe 30% non-white how did, how did I figure that all out? I didn't, I don't know. I just been preaching Hebrews. Uh, there's one race, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah. You didn't go and, and start, you know, bashing the police or kneel or, you know, do any of that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. And so how, how does that, how do I change the city? I mean, I somebody said to me the other day, you know, I want to do some more things in the city and, and evangelize more people. Great. I'm going to equip you in this, equip you in this local mm -hmm. church in the suburb to do that. I mean, I wear spandex a lot because I'm a bicyclist. So I have a specialized kind of, same, uh, <laughs> I almost got hit the other day. That's a dangerous hobby. Anyway, <laughs> I know. Sometimes I listen to you on the bicycle. So, uh, uh, and and but now I know how to talk to bicyclists because that's just what I do. That's my hobby, and this, that, and the other. And I have neighbors, and and therefore, uh, I, I don't want to change, alter, add to, subtract from anything that comes from. Here's the life of Christ, and we see Him, and here's we see His His penalty substitution, His resurrection. And uh, I just don't think we plumb the depths of the person of Christ enough because we just start like, you know, here's an altar call. Uh, King James, King, I, I'll say this. I think many King James only fighting fundamentalist, uh, independent Baptists talk about Jesus more than some evangelicals do. I've noticed that. In their sermons. Yeah. Because at least they'll say death, burial, and resurrection at the end before you come up. It's, it's this incessant um, call for faithfulness. Apart from the faithful one. The book of Hebrews, 13 chapters. It's a sermon. It's an epistolatory sermon or a sermonic epistle, whichever one you want to call it. And he goes off on who Jesus is with some warnings, but the commands don't come until the end. And so therefore, we don't want to be lawless people. Uh, the law is good. We're not antinomian. But I want to focus on the Lord Jesus. There's a reason why Paul said, him we proclaim. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to do some short questions with you now. Sure. Uh, or short answers. And uh, I, I'm going to ask you first, 
you've recommended a few books to me. I'm going to ask you, recommend one book to my audience. If you had to choose one and they said, I really want to understand better the gospel, what would, would the book be? Romans. <laughs> okay. I meant non-canonical book, but all right. That's your canonical book. Okay. Now what's okay. your non-canonical book? Well, you know what? Since Romans is kind of divided up, uh, uh, guilt, um, grace and gratitude. And that's where we get the Heidelberg Catechism. <clears throat> it's not a book I know, but I'd have people read the Heidelberg Catechism just okay. so they can be encouraged. It's so refreshing. If you read the first three questions, you can't put it down. You'll just think, you know what, what's my only comfort in life and death? And it talks about the Lord Jesus. And you just think, you know what, this makes me want to worship him. Uh, in terms of other books, uh, I said to Sinclair Ferguson in person, uh, two shepherds conferences ago, I said, you know what? The whole Christ changed my life. Um, the book that you wrote, it changed my ministry, my life, uh, my presentation. I don't have to be looking mad and mean. Thomas Boston talks about the tincture and the gospel tincture, and you can tell people that God loves them and smile and not be afraid of, of kind of loose living if you preach the real gospel. And so I think the whole Christ it would be the book that I probably read three times, listened to maybe five times, uh, that really gives you a fresh taste of the gospel, the whole Christ Sinclair Ferguson. Awesome. Seminaries. All right. You have one seminary to recommend. <clears throat> Young man comes to you, says, I want to go be equipped to know the word of God better. Where do you send them? See, you're going to get me in so much I'm, trouble. I'm planning on it. Yeah. Okay. I, no, no, that's okay. Your escape hatch is that there could be other good seminaries that maybe just almost made it, but didn't quite. So you can just name the number one. Right. I would send them to Westminster Seminary in Escondido. Even if they're Baptist? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, they used to have the Baptist Center there uh, with Jim Renahan that's now moved to Texas. Uh, but even as, as Baptist, I think you go there. And if your view of baptism isn't strong enough to withhold or withstand uh, the Presbyterian version, then okay. uh, the, reason, the reason why I pick Westminster Seminary is because I think they understand law gospel categories. I think they understand justification, sanctification categories, uh, church history, uh, the Reformation, and I think that's good. Um, uh, I think some seminaries have so overemphasized eschatology that their soteriology uh, sometimes is lacking. And uh, I don't really care so much about people's eschatology, assuming that it's the literal bodily return of Jesus. Um, and so I, I would say Westminster Escondido. Okay. For, for a non-serious question, uh, you're, you have to preach, and it's, an, it's a hot summer day. Uh, Rick Warren, Hawaiian shirt, or John MacArthur suit and tie? <laughs> Which one? Uh, I've only preached in a Hawaiian shirt uh, once in my life. That's when I was in Hawaii, and I was told to do that. Uh, <laughs> so you, you go for the cultural norms. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, every Sunday, I preach with a sports coat and a tie. And uh, I had some kind of uh, tricky Volcom slacks on Sunday. I don't think anybody knew they were these surf shorts. I have Volcom on even now. Do you surf? Uh, uh, I do, but my kids are much better. And my wife is much better than I am. Yes. Do you do that? Now you're in, I think, Massachusetts, right? So you, yeah, you get surf. to the beach in about an hour and 10 minutes. And they the surf wave, in Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah. The yeah. waves aren't as good as in California and yeah. Santa Cruz, uh, but you can surf here. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So definitely a suit and tie. Um, not, not, the, not the Hawaiian deal. All right. So I probably know the answer to the next uh, non-serious question, but uh, hymns or contemporary or a mix? 
what's interesting, you have um, uh, Handel's Messiah came out and everybody thought it was too new. It was too contemporary. <laughs> they hated it. <laughs> it was what the cool um, kids were all listening to in their boom boxes, right? Yeah. I know. At our, at our service at Bethlehem Bible Church, we have uh, both hymns and uh, contemporary songs. And some of those contemporary songs are like um, Luther's words redone uh, about counting us righteous in Christ Jesus and only his mercy, only his grace, that type of thing, Psalm 130. So I, I, it's kind of a blend. Uh, I'd like to sing more psalms, and so maybe we're slowly going to introduce more psalms. Too. All right. Well, a lot, final question. How can people be praying for you um, specifically after they listen to this podcast? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think something funny. <laughs> oh, you, you wanted more non-serious questions? I mean, I can certainly. Uh... <laughs> um, I'm 60 years old. Uh, I've been here at the church for 23 years. Uh, I, I would like to finish well. I, I know lots of people that haven't finished well for whatever reason. And uh, I would like to keep preaching Christ. Uh, and when I can't do that, they probably just need to take me out. But I've just been seeing, so, take me out, I mean, figuratively speaking. And then like a, uh, yeah, like a Joe Biden needs to not run kind of thing. I get it. Yeah, uh, yeah that's exactly right. <laughs> and so I just would like to finish well. Uh, I don't want to bring any scandals. Um, for lots of reasons. One one reason I think to uh, uh, um, John and all this, I was almost going to call you Joe. Um, I, I think when I'm really pushing people to what the Reformation teaches about grace and free grace and the free offer of the gospel and how it needs to be almost question like Paul did in Romans 6, anticipating the question, should we sin the grace might abound? That's too good to be true. We've got to keep these people at bay. If, if I do something awful or sin in some egregious way, I think then people would say, see, he believed that because he was hiding something. And so I want to finish well to honor the Lord Jesus uh, because I just came from an awful background and I want to be a good example to my wife and children. I went to a funeral the other day of a 54-year-old man, and I heard the kids get up and speak of their father. And I, do, I want them to get up and, and, and think, you know what? By the grace of God, Dad finished well. But somewhere down the line, four or five, uh, number six or something down there, I, I, I don't want to finish poorly and then have people say, you know what? What he taught wasn't true because this free grace will just get you a licentious life. So pray wow. that I finish well. Wow. Yeah. Well, you're a humble man. I appreciate you sharing that. You didn't even plug any of your books, but if people want to find them, they can go to nocompromiseradio.com and they can listen to your podcast there. And I'm assuming your sermons as well and anything else that you have available. Uh, so Pastor uh, Mike Avendraw, thank you so much for joining me. God bless you. John, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.